Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So this session of Baffling Combustions special note to say this is a throwback to the dawn of our time together from October 2019 this is the second part of our time with Lucretius's The Nature of Things written in the first century of our common era and this is picking up where Swerve One leaves off so you can drop back and hear the original recording or, and or plunge right into this. We welcome you at the lip of this look back into our past and we wish you all the best in this hour ahead. Stay tuned and stay strange. So here we are doing Swerve Dose and Dule, Duo. Nature of our time together is such that I would like to start off with a quotation Mm. from Richard Tuttle, which I feel is, is relevant to our talk going forward and to learning about Lucretius's The the, uh, Natura de Rerum. Uh, And Tuttle writes, how great to see uncertainty when everything else is fixed. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, it's uh, and I'm a giant fan of Tuttle's art, his uh, paintings. I saw the retrospective at the San Francisco MoMA and then at the New York City MoMA. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he's a really profound and silly artist simultaneously. And also what's interesting is he's he writes in this aphoristic way, Sparrow, that is somewhat yeah. reminiscent of your own lines. Yeah, I uh, I saw him read with his wife, Maymay Brussenbrugge, at the Dia Foundation. I said, he writes poetry, Tuttle. Yeah. And he's an interesting poet. There aren't too many... On that. Great artists who are also poets of any value. 
Picasso is a pretty lousy poet. Carl Andre wrote some poetry. Yeah, I like Carl Andre's writing. Poetry, but with a little bit of swerve to it, actually. Just, yeah. you know, fairly discernible. The best kind. Turner, Turner, Turner was a poet as well. Huh, really? You've read his poetry? Um, I, a friend um, showed me some of his poetry. He, he wrote some incomprehensible manuscript that has almost a um, Gertrude Stein-like feel with uh, no huh. punctuation and... Huh. Um, huh. Very static in its phrasings. It's about art, or it's just about no one knows what. I don't think anyone quite knows. Um, it's I think it's pretty um, pretty abstract. That's my sense. Huh. And Blake, yeah. his contemporary, was an was artist correct. and poet. Uh, um, Blake was earlier, I think. And but it, irrespective of that, you guys, um, let's do right, the, well, the Cretan thing. Come on. So why? So, uh, Yeah, I've got my research on Lucretius. Real name, Titus Lucretius Carus. Died mid to late 50s BCE. An Epicurean poet of the late Roman Republican era. His six-book Latin hexameter poem, De Rerum Natura, uh, which is generally translated as the, on the nature of things, survives virtually intact, but there's some uncertainty about whether he actually finished it, you know, whether it's kind of unfinished. The six yeah. books don't constitute the whole. Yeah. Maybe it's uh, just a no, no, I think, well, well, one theory is that the six books are longer than the final draft would be, because the first three books are short, the last three books are long, so there's a theory that he would have shortened, would have tightened up the last three books. And I guess the only thing we know for sure, we, we know virtually nothing about his life, but um, except that uh, Cicero writes to his brother in 54 BCE, where he uh, mentions the flashes of genius and craftsmanship that characterize uh, Lucretius's poetry. According to St. Jerome, uh, Lucretius was driven mad by a love filter. You know that word filter? P-H-I-L-T-R-E. means oh, yeah, like a... Like, a fi- like some... Like punch. a love, to- love potion. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but this is like, you know, because Lucretius is a big uh, atheist, there's some doubt that Lucretius that St. Jerome is reliable on this subject. And uh, anyway, so St. Jerome says, uh, poor Lucretius went mad, wrote poetry in his lucid intervals, and uh, died by suicide. Died by suicide? Yeah, that's what St. Jerome says. But really, there's no evidence. Corroboration. Yeah, for that. So his birth, is uh, on you know possibly 94 BCE. Death is either 54 or 51 BCE. That's pretty much all that we really know for sure about Lucretius. He's not. The the one thing I would say just to correct is to um, is that Lucretius's universe is populated by the Roman Greco-Roman gods actually. Right. 
but it's more his attitude toward them. He considers them to be signatories of different folds or energetic fields more Which, than, and also that the gods have nothing to do with us. Why would they piddle with us? You know, they're gods. Is this other trope? Which, you know, which all anticipates of uh, the deist universe, you know, that follows on Newtonian physics. Right. Yeah. He wrote a he wrote a physics and also an ethics, um, Epicurus. And, Epicurus. Um, both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I remember teaching from the, uh, I guess it's the uh, the physics, right? Where he he um, develops his atomic theory, theory of um, atoms in the void. Well, that's the thing I forgot to say, that apparently, my understanding is all of uh, Lucretius's ideas come from Epicurus. Epicurus yes. invented the philosophy that Lucretius, 200 years later, made into a poem. And one of the great ironies, or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, interesting uh, contradictions is that Lucretius is like the world's greatest disciple of Epicurus, takes all his ideas from him, except one idea, which is Epicurus hated poetry, was against poetry like, like Plato was. Even though Epicurus is kind of a, you know, uh, disagrees with Plato, he agrees with him that poetry is no good, and Lucretius takes Epicurus's idea, ideas and turns them into a big, long poem. You know why that was? You know why that... Why it was? I don't know. Why are you asking me? Poetry, but he... Yeah, oh, I know. I mean, he believed that the good life mm. right, was the undisturbed life. Huh. He thought that the composition of poetry and the reception of poetry was um, emotionally jarring. Uh-huh. That it disrupted the, um, the undisturbed life. This is Epicurus believing this. this. Epicurus, yeah. Huh, huh. Yeah. I had this uh, poetry professor when I went to City College as a graduate student. I got a master's in creative writing. What was his name? He was a Greek. And he, I'm forgetting his name, but he had to stop writing poetry because he would get so emotional when he wrote poems that um, his doctor told him if he wrote another poem, he would get a heart attack. So he had to quit. Um, Kevafi? Well, but no, no. This was like my professor at oh, City College. Your professor at City College. Who was, you know, he happened to be a Greek. Ah. God, I'm not remembering his name. But he, um, he had to swear off poetry because it might kill him. Because he was so passionate about it. Poetry, like, affected him deeply, so profoundly, emotionally, when he wrote it, that it was a danger to his life. That is a danger to his life. Well, now I didn't read this recently, but I believe that part of Lucretius's rationale for the writing of this book was as a form of um, consolation mm. for people who fear death. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, my sense. something yeah. something along those lines. The the use of poetry as also being a vehicle of, of pleasure and potentially of the transmission of a kind of tranquility that mm. one arrives at once one no longer fears death. And the, uh, I remember um, uh, the um, advice he gave philosophically about how to mitigate death 
anxiety is to try to conceptualize, trying to pic- picture um, time space before you entered it. Hmm. And that if you did that, um, you would conclude that um, you had no complaints. <laughs> that it was necessary to reimagine this period after the end of life as well. That was one yeah. of his meditations on... Um, I've had that thought that, you know, everybody worries about what's going to happen to them after death, but nobody worries about where they were before birth. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it, it, it is very interesting, isn't it? Mm, yeah. yeah. It's but like it's you also, kind of think that the world started with you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to perhaps link the the moment of conception uh, huh. with uh, the swerve. Huh. That one of the uh, sperms swerved into the uh, ovary, and that's why you're conser- conceived. Yeah, just the, the, I don't know, that it's a um, mm. astronomical, you know, uh, chance operation that, you know, winds up in our being here together, each of us in our own right. In yeah. our, in our Fumbling for words. <clears throat> so, Sam, um, what about uh, Stephen Greenblatt? And I, you know, I, I um, he wrote that book on the swerve. Yeah. What maybe about six or seven years ago, people. I, I have uh, mixed feelings about it, and I think we could, you know, cite some criticism of his thesis. But obviously, you know, anything like that that posits a text as being, you know, a text of poetry as having change the world. I believe his argument is very valid, actually. What, what argument? Lucretius was, um, <clears throat> you know, was <throat> like very explosive material to introduce fa- into Italy, father, into, uh, Rome. The father of mo- modern, modernity, right? Doesn't he um, suggest that um, Lucretius is the, the father of um, postmodernism and that there, you know, he was that influential, right? That singular, yeah, yeah, and also as as I I have some rap about it um, applicable to quantum theory, <laughs> yeah, you know. So, oh right, yeah. Uh, one one direction I wanted us to go is to the actual moment of the swerve as it's first articulated. Hmm. Right. I'm wondering right. if that would uh, would be useful, and particularly going to the ground with some of these. Latin words and sort of like really analyzing what he's saying Mm. because I feel sometimes when people talk about Lucretius and the nature of this inclination that they kind of get it a little bit wrong and there's some interesting language Mm. in here. Could we read it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you want me to read this translation that's slightly wooden? It's... um, you know, from the 1910s, um, and uh, we'll have to follow up on the the translator. But it it reads, one further point in this matter, I desire you to understand that while the first bodies are being carried downwards by their own weight in a straight line through the void, hmm. at times quite uncertain and uncertain places. They swerve a little from their course 
just so much as you might call a change of motion. Hmm. For if they were not apt to incline, all would fall downwards like raindrops through the profound void. No collision would take place and no blow would be caused amongst the first beginnings. Thus, nature would never have produced anything. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the rap. That's the basic rap. And um, one area that I wanted to kind of look at is his actual language hmm. to determine these um, these different aspects of the swerve. Hmm as it's come to be called, but which I believe it would be more appropriate, you know, his use is spatio de peleri palum, which means um, to move in space a little. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this idea of just a small space, um, just a little swerve, a swerve, the smallest amount of change to make the greatest amount of difference. And then he uses uh, to um, declinare, um, to decline. And depilare means to push off. Hmm. So it's just that little bit of movement to the side. The, the two things, I mean, so I feel that there's a better word, and I believe it's closer to clinamen or climb, climb. But the one thing is the word for void. Hmm. Void per, through the void is per inane. I oh yeah, I saw inane. that inane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens twice in both instances of the void, and I would want to call back to Alfred Jarry <laughs> and to his pronouncement. Mad. Shit. Mad. We did this last time. Yeah. Shit. Ubu Roy. Yeah, so what are you saying? That how does the shit fit into the inane? That's what that's what the void oh, is. He's yeah, sure. the, the acts of innatity are calling are the void, are calling to the void. I see. Like when you're being inane, when you're being a fool, you're sort of being a, a kind of walking void. Like a and joker. Also, and you're also outside of society. Mm. I believe that's a swerve when you are in a in the role of the fool or the jester, yeah. both in the court, but is also outside of it by way of humor and able to mm. comment on it. Mm. Mm. That duality or that hinge, that sort of hermetic state. Yeah. I mean, I associate it with the unconscious, maybe because I'm always reading Freud, but it feels like when Shakespeare is writing The Fool... He's always drawing from some kind of what I would call some kind of unconscious uh, brain, you know, source where, you know, like King Lear is l lamenting his fate and the fool is just saying every kind of nonsense that comes into his head. And uh, Shakespeare liked these like random brain word grammar generating tools, which... I would assume come from the unconscious. I don't know. Yeah. 
you know, one thing is it's it's slightly reminiscent also of uh, Lucretius in that sense of the infinitude of potential expression. Hmm. Um, is that in Lucretius? He, he talks about yeah. In this passage that I found that I liked, and it goes like this: For surely the atoms did not hold counsel, assigning <laughs> order to each, flexing their keen minds with questions of place and motion and mm. who goes where, but shuffled and jumbled in many ways. In the course of endless time, they are <laughs> buffeted, driven along, chancing upon all motions, combinations. Mm. At last, they fall into such an arrangement as would create this universe. Hmm. Well, Sparrow, it really does sound like the workings of the unconscious, doesn't it? That? Yeah. You think so? In some ways, just you know, the, the movements and recombinations and um, emotions that come up from the subconscious. Huh. Huh. That I mean, you mean... Change. Reminiscent of the seething of the word horde, <laughs> and out of the seething hive of potential expression come mm. these words. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, to me, I just see it as kind of some kind of weird materialism, you know, which I found, um, you know, myself thinking about materialism because Lucretius, okay. Maybe he's not officially an atheist, but he believes that the soul does not uh, survive death, and um, and the gods don't affect anything. Basically, everything is the movement of uh, of atoms. Everything is just matter, you know, materializing and rematerializing. Yeah, and th that's why he had to invent the swerve because even he figured out, or rather, Epicurus, um, that. You know, a purely mechanistic uh, universe would not create uh, th this world that we have, where we have free will, for example. You know that it's it's it can't be explained by purely mechanistic terms. All the variety and randomness. All the uh, well, the fact that you and I can think. You know, the fact that. Um, the world is complex. It's not a series of chain reactions. You know, it's everything isn't purely causes causing other causes, you know, because I think this was the issue that Epicurus came up with is like everything will just be a chain reaction, kind of. And ultimately predictable, which it isn't. Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking I was thinking of this lately when I was at Cornell. There was some sociology professor that I liked a lot who seemed very wise and brilliant and he said i will not be happy <laughs> until sociology can predict tomorrow's headlines <laughs> and and you know that's like epicurus it's like yeah we should eventually be able to predict tomorrow's headlines if the world if it weren't for that swerve you know everything would be predictable it would be like a like a hollywood movie where you know how it's going to end well i mean and, part of lucretius's influence on you know, 500 plus or minus years ago, is in part that sense of a determined or a discrete universe. Mm. 
Mm. that it mm. is quantifiable, that it can be counted. Mm. Um, you know, thus comes the arising of the cyborg, you know, in part, um, because it's all based on an algor algorithm, algorithmic processes. Mm. Mm. And we're driving the algorithm back farther and farther. And also of the, the as you pointed out, the non-event of God and yeah. the the sense of human beings as being unique hmm. and our attention turned from the divine to to different sessions of enlightened self-interest hmm. at its hmm. best you know oh i see rather than serving god being a slave to god which was kind of the medieval concept you mean yeah you know, um, Ovid wrote some very beautiful words about um, Lucretius's poetry. Huh. Do you want to hear them? Yeah. I quote, when a single day brings the world to destruction, only then will the poetry of the sublime Lucretius pass away. Ha, ha, ha. Wow. And this was, this was written after um, Lucretius's death. This is Ovid? This is Ovid, yeah. Huh. Ovid, the art of love. Who would think that he was a secret materialist? Yeah, I wish I could see. I, tr I looked at, you know, a little bit of Lucretia's poetry, and I have the, whatever, delusion that I'm like an expert on poetry, even though the stuff I write is kind of anti-poetry. But um, I, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see the greatness of Lucretius's line. I couldn't hear the his poet you know i don't like latin particularly as a language you know it just sounded sort of legalistic like like latin generally sounds it didn't Awkward, have legalistic words it didn't have much of a swerve in the deep grammar it just didn't have beauty that i could see an elegance which you know to me poet what poetry is really like song it's a melody that's what makes something a poem to my mind. It sounds like a song. It may mean nothing or it may mean a lot. It doesn't really matter. But it's but it has a, a, a melodic quality to it, a music. Yeah. The 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 words form beautiful shapes. Particularly when you say them out loud, but even when you say them to yourself. I wish I had Lucretius, you know, the Latin in front of me, but I, I which I didn't print out, but you know, just to make sure. But anyway, that was my take. A lot on it. of poetry is actually discontinuous and dis discontinuous. And uh, also, mm -hmm. as you pointed out, Andrew, the Volta, the surprise. Right. Yeah. And that has more the sense of the clinamen of this of this slight change that brings about the most difference. Hey, mm -hmm. can I mention something at this point? Sure. I just want to say, and I hope this um, doesn't break our conversational norms. But um, I was looking through my book of poems, and I didn't realize this because it's been a while. I wrote a poem on the swerve. Oh, well, let's, <laughs> let's... <laughs> can, can I read it aloud? Yeah. Okay. Sounds okay. great. Okay. It's called Swerve On. <laughs> I, I want life to swerve on without anybody getting hurt. And most of all, myself. And not out of self-preservation, 
but for psychic high fives and the empty ache of late afternoon, mildly set upon a better life after passing the kidney stone of a disappointing summer. <laughs> Some wow. are lonelier than a cloud over a field north in a county ripe for reflective thoughts to calm what it was that brought on the emotional virus. Hmm. That was going around earlier this month, I promised to fill moments of day or night with bioluminescence or penance should nickel and dime hating burn too much time. Hmm. There it is, swerve on. Wow. Psychic high five. And it doesn't have punctuation. and No punctuation. And there's a chaos way. Yeah, no punctuation. Um, I don't know. I just I thought that was interesting. I hadn't really um, thought about this word before, but it manifested in a poem written rather spontaneously. You were thinking about about Lucretius when I you don't wrote think it. So. No, no, I don't think so. I think it just emerged out of the unconscious in some ways. This idea I that you know, I want to swerve out of this reality that I'm in, this crappy summer, yeah. into this better life. Yeah, through words, right? Mm. Yeah, through penance, right? And bioluminescence. Bio yeah. You want to kind of glow. want to make yourself glow like a glowworm. I guess that's bioluminescence. I guess I'm, I'm always hoping to... Um, swerve into that moment of illumination oh yeah i think that's something we should definitely come back to and i and i but i kind of wanted to get things back on the science front okay relative to quantum theory and you know one of the profound sort of insights is uh, Werner heisenberg's positing that observation affects phenomena uh-huh. which is kind of a poetic um uh, extrapolation on, on what he said. Though nevertheless, as it turns out, through this series of quotations that I derived from uh, Bob Berman's article, Is It In Your Mind?, which I found in a local newspaper, the Woodstock Times, what Heisenberg was talking about was wave and particle function, um, yeah. namely that photons are both a wave and a particle Particles. in potentiality. And you can only determine what it is by observing it. But they're both, you know, both are possibilities, you know, which goes back to Schrodinger's cat and stuff like that. So you're but saying the, if, you're, if you're expecting to see it as a wave, you'll see it as a wave. But if you're expecting to see it as a particle, you'll see it as a particle. Well, that's an interesting aspect um, that kind of circles back to something Einstein said once, which is that your theory determines what you find. Right. Mm. You know, and all of these things are, are possible um, within, a, within a quantum view. The one thing I wanted to point out is that is this line from Berman. Uh, he's talking about instantaneous change in its wave function, which was regarded as a kind of blurry sense of probability or potential. A strange pre-existence, one that had not yet collapsed into an actual item with tangible properties. Mm-hmm. So this is the this is this use of this term collapse instead of swerve. This idea of collapse, mm. 
Hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting. And I guess, you know, within, within this view, what, what Lucretius in part may be pointing toward is actually what came to be called the Big Bang Theory. Hmm. Namely, that the birth of the universe itself was a swerve, hmm. um, you know, that resolved itself into, as Lucretius writes, um, at last they fall into such an arrangement as would create this universe. Mm-hmm. I suppose. I mean, I think the. it seems to me that by swerve, you know, he means very literally that these particles are endlessly falling through space. And if they don't swerve somehow, you can't have a world. The right. world well, this, can't, yeah. He's can't, pointing to the, uh, a kind of first event. I think maybe he's, he's saying that atoms won't combine into molecules. They'll just be parallel to each other unless one of them moves slightly. I, I'm not sure, but I think that might be what he's saying. And that causes kind of a chain reaction that starts the universe. That's well, how we can extrapolate or hypothesize from what he writes yeah. in terms of our current view, you know, yeah. applying our theories, you know, to where we he was, that there's a continuousness. And the one thing I wanted to then just kind of, I wanted to give you some quotes from physics, phys, uh, physicists. Okay. It seemed to be like the outer edges of that thing that Lucretius started this idea of turning toward the human. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are some quotes. These are some quotes. The plurality that we experience is only an appearance. It is not real. I should huh. say the overall number of minds is just one. Huh. I venture to call it indestructible since it has a peculiar timetable Namely, mind is always now. There is only a now that includes memories and expectations. Who's that? Who said that? This is Schrodinger. Oh. And then he goes on to write, consciousness is always singular. The plural is unknown. <laughs> then uh, Max Planck, he, he said, I regard matter as derivative hmm. from consciousness. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Finally, there's the British cosmologist Martin Race, um, who said, the universe could only come into existence if someone observed it. It does not matter that the observers turned up several billion years later. <laughs> the universe exists because we are aware of it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this is pretty, I mean, I just came from a yoga retreat this uh, weekend with my group, the Ananda Marga Society, and, uh, you know, this is what the yogis have been saying, as far as I can see it, for, you know, a few thousand years, and now uh, these scientists seem to have kind of backed into it, starting out with absolute materialism, you know, they kind of deconstructed the universe. They started looking closer and closer at it, discovered, I mean, Einstein clearly says, if I understand it correctly, that uh, matter is energy. So if matter is energy, uh, 
so then matter doesn't exist. The world is an illusion, really. It's it's a bunch of little energetic particles masquerading as a physical object. And um, and then what the yogis say is, yes, this is all true, except where does the energy come from? The energy comes from consciousness, and in fact is returning to consciousness. I, I don't think it's what Lucretius is saying, but I think Lucretius, you could argue, you know, was rediscovered. If I understand what this guy Greenblatt is saying, Lucretius was rediscovered in something like the 15th century. He kind of helped to create the scientific revolution, which kind of looked at everything entirely materialistically by carefully analyzing everything from a purely materialistic standpoint. They found themselves backing up into uh, mysticism. Yeah. And, and now they're like even more mystical than the mystics. Now there's like wormholes and 19. I, I found some magazine at the Phoenicia Library, Time Magazine, news uh, breakthroughs in physics. And this stuff is like the craziest stuff you could ever imagine. There's like thousands of universes and there's wormholes between the universes. And it's like, this cannot be physics. But, you know, it sounds like a science fiction novel, but this is what they're saying now. <laughs> it's weirder than the Upanishads, you know, but similar. <laughs> I've been there, dude. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The um, <laughs> and, I, and I would also say that Lucretius was there. Uh, this uh -huh. is, uh, yeah, I found one one article. This is one of the last thing I think. This is from Thomas Nile. He's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Denver. He's oh. also interested in quantum mechanics. Mm. And he writes, working at once within and against the atomist tradition, Lucretius put forward the first materialist philosophy of an infinitely continuous nature in mm. constant flux and motion. Things mm. for Lucretius are nothing but folds, and then in quotes, duplex, pleats, um, that is plex, uh, bubbles or pores, foramina, as a single continuous fabric, textum, or where we derive text from, woven by its own undulations. Huh. Nature is an infinitely turbulent, turbulent or perturbing, but it also washes ashore. And then here's a little, you know, splash like the birth of Venus in metastable forms, as Lucretius writes. And that, these are actually the opening lines of, of his book. Without you, Venus, nothing emerges into the sunlight, sunlit shores of light. Wow. Love. I thought he didn't... Uh, love, I he didn't. love is consciousness. I love that. Yeah. Well, I think that's how you would start a, a big, long, epic poem back then. You have to, like, bow to the goddess. That's, uh, you know, to the muses, to the goddess, to the gods, something like that. Well, to Venus, Some, uh, the goddess to of love. Yeah. Invocate. I mean, like, you'd be a fool to start a big, long poem without thanking the gods. Because, you know, it's like asking for trouble, even if you don't sort of believe in the gods. The thing that I find kind of fascinating is I read somewhere that Lucretius believes that the gods are made of atoms, 
but they're made of finer atoms than human atoms. Like they've got like their own special atoms that are kind of like highly, <laughs> like aristocratic kind of atoms. That's how I picture Arist them. Yeah, atoms. It sounds a little bit like Gurdjieff uh, and his thesis around the nature of oxygen. Which is what? Within, well, within oxygen, there's different fineness of huh? arrangement hmm. um, within within a breath of air, and that it through like those practices that you were doing last weekend, <laughs> able to access some of that finer food in the oxygen. Huh. Yeah. The uh, Well, the yogis believe we're not alive because we eat food. We're alive because of the prana in the air. And the prana, the prana is some kind of very subtle essence that's in air. It's not air. I think it's somehow motivated... But, or this is the sense I have, it's kind of set into motion by sunlight. And uh, the prana is activated kind of by sunlight. And then we breathe the prana, that's what keeps us alive. We're under the illusion that we are uh, eating food and that's keeping us alive. But that's just because we are materialists. We don't see. That's why you can be a breatharian. Eventually you can reach a point where you don't have to eat. You just breathe. And, yeah, um, it's called the breatharian, I think. Breatharian. Oh, well, I, I always heard breatharian. I think both are correct. <laughs> so there are yogis out there, Sparrow, who, who, who like the medieval Catholic saints, don't eat, right? They, I thought maybe those saints ate like one sesame seed a day. Those, I think I remember my college roommate telling me St. Simon Stylites the one who was a desert father in Egypt, he would eat one sesame seed a day. One sesame seed a day. <laughs> <laughs> they ate, you know, not much. Maybe the Eucharist. Eat the oh, yeah, that's seed. right. I think there are people that subsist entirely on Eucharist. I yeah, forgot about that. Bread and the wine, right? This is why you have to go to theology school to learn about these dudes. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to, say two things. I've learned two things. One I've learned <laughs> recently, the consciousness is love. Hmm. I, I think I, yeah, I like that. And then the other is what I feel, should I give it to you now, my super great secret esoteric, if that's not tautological, reading <laughs> and what I believe Lucretius truly meant. Okay. Yeah. And that is, I believe that the nature of the Klinemen is an event in, in turning toward consciousness. Oh, I believe that yeah. the swerve is that thing where you're going through your day and huh. there's a moment at which you come back to yourself and you say, huh. you know, I'm standing here, this is me, I'm here. That huh. moment of self-awareness. Huh. I consider that to be the Klinemen, huh. yeah, that's practically speaking. It's definitely a Klinemen. Yeah, it's funny because I um, did a whole study of my own self, and I was going shopping in Brooklyn. You know, uh, I was staying at my dad's house in Brooklyn, my 100-year-old father's house, 
And I just noticed where I swerved as I walked down Prospect Park West. I kept like a record. I, uh, I found a garbage can. Inside the garbage can was a pizza box. Inside the pizza box was a slice of pizza. Okay, it was a little old, but it tasted quite good. It was a little cold, but it tasted good. And like I just kind of swerved into that pizza. <laughs> and then I like was walking further down the street. I saw another garbage can with an empty cigarette box in it. And I thought, well, my friend Eli is always looking for cigarettes. I'm, these were American spirits. I'm going to open the box and see if there's any cigarettes inside. And there were none. And then I went to the supermarket. And then a song came on the uh uh, loudspeaker and you know and then for a moment I was just like in love with that song I was like swerving into that song and I was trying to find like that song on the internet just now and the best one I could find was DJ Khalid featuring SZA this song called Just Us wasn't the right song but it was a song equally great Just Us by DJ Khalid and then there was a little kid riding on a mechanical horse with her mother you know, they still have these things for like, I don't know, 50 cents. You get on the horse, little, yeah. you know, it's little metal horse, and you ride back and forth. So anyway, it goes on and on, my little journal of swerves. But I was noticing what, you know, what they call in uh, yoga the vrittis, or at least in my group, they call it the vrittis. The essentially attractions that you have, like desires, you could call it. Like, I have a vritti for pizza. I love pizza. If I see pizza, I want to eat it. I have a vritti for mechanical horses. If I see someone on a mechanical horse, I got to watch. You know, are, there, things, are there things that have the, the same oomph for you that you, like, stay away from, that you feel repelled yeah. from? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't notice those things. What? Maybe that, I don't notice those things. Maybe that's why I'm always happy. Because I, I don't notice yeah, yeah, the like, things I yeah. like. I just notice the things I like. Maybe I, there's not that many things towards which I have aversion. You know, I don't like seeing feces, I suppose, on the street, you know, like everyone. But uh, um, and that kind of interests uh, me. Yeah. I might look at the feces like, hmm, I wonder what kind of dog made that, you know. So at a, at a more not meta level but just within that that stream which seems to me one of relative continuity like a kind <laughs> of uniformity of of process what would constitute a real swerve for you well i mean i was saying all of these were swerves like i have my normal consciousness my normal walking down the street empty blank void inane and then I have like, oh, there's something I like, you know. But isn't that isn't that more just cause and effect? Uh, I guess you could call it cause and effect, as opposed to oh, some swerve that would would really change my life, maybe. Right, out of the pattern. Yeah, I don't know. I I met this homeless woman on the subway the other day, and uh, I was going to my meditation group for the Dharma Chakra. And this woman was talking. She was sitting on the subway, talking to everyone in the car. And she said, started crying. She said, I really want to, I need, I need food. I need money. But my problem is I lost my copy of Begging 101. And 
I would just like I was so struck by the joke that I gave her a dollar and then I ended up sitting with her. Oh, this for, is the Southern Bell. Yeah, the Southern Bell. I told you about her. Yeah, we rapped about it the other night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I was telling you. Yeah, she's from Atlanta, Georgia. She's a, a former tax lawyer, now a homeless alcoholic. Referred to herself as an alcoholic. That's why she didn't got turned away. I told you, Sam, she got turned away from the homeless shelter the night before, and she was saying, "Why did they turn me away? Why did they turn me away?" I said, "Why did they turn you away?" She said, "I guess I was drunk, but it's not my fault. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, it's a condition I have. It's a sickness. They don't turn away diabetics." Well, and just like a- sitting with her, I don't know. Just like I spent like all the way to Jamaica, Queens. From somewhere like West Forth, no, somewhere in Brooklyn. So I talked to her almost an hour, wow. and she completely transformed my life. <laughs> I felt, in some way, I gave her my phone number. She hasn't called me yet, I believe. I, I mean, something about it. At the yoga retreat, we were talking about mentors. You know how you meet mentors in your life, and I was thinking, that's who came to mind. This woman. She I, was got, I already teacher. forgot her name. She has a great name, too. Well, I suppose I shouldn't say it anyway, if I could remember it. She was your teacher. She just seemed like she was kind of bringing me to another level somehow, just by listening to her story. I mean, it was such a great story. Oh, right, I told you that part where she, like, you know, she loses custody of her four-year-old kid, and she turns to the whole subway car, and she says, and you know who did it? You know who took away my kid? It was Judge Judy. Judge Judy, before she was famous, happened to be the judge, according to her. I don't know how much any of this was true. Oh, and the other thing that was great about her, she'd been in a, she fell asleep on like a subway platform the night before, so they took her to a hospital and they gave her um, a two bracelets, one with her name on it and the other one that was in yellow and said, high risk. It's like... What oh, a great thing to walk to that one. <laughs> As a fashion statement. I would really like to get one of those. Yeah, a high-risk bracelet? Yeah, a high-risk bracelet. Well, <laughs> what should we just... Um, by the way, um, Sam, I like your notion that, that love is consciousness. Huh. And I have written in my book here, love is the orgasm of consciousness. Oh, really? What do you mean you have written where? Wait a minute, wait. In your, like... Notes for this discussion? No, I just scribbled it down. I just scribbled <laughs> it down while we were talking. Hmm. Oh, uh, well, just now you wrote it down. Yeah. I, to be honest, I'm right. I'm typing in orgasm. I don't know what the etymology of orgasm is. Do you guys know? <laughs> like I, orgy, maybe? Or orgay in impulse, excitement, anger. Oh, anger. Rogue, to burgeon, swell with strength. It's connected, actually, in a lot of its cognates to anger, curiously. Oh, yeah, orgueil. Orgueil in French, O-R-G-U-E-I-L. Orgueil, that means pride. Uh Uh-huh, it's a swelling up, yeah. To be in heat, become ripe, literally to swell, be excited. I'm getting excited. (laughs) Impulse, excitement. Maybe that's what we should do next time. (laughs) Discuss orgasms. (laughs) Orgasms I have known.
Well, do we have anything more to say about Lucretius? Anything we left unsaid? I just, you know, I just would would mention that I think it's a useful lens. I like it, the um, the notion of the swerve. It's a useful lens for thinking about all sorts of forms of life. Hmm. That's what I've gotten from our conversation, whether it's um, internet searches or social relationships or psychoanalysis. It just, it's, it's I think it's, it's very y- useful um, as an interpretive lens. I, I'm seeing a lot of swerves around, and it's affected my thinking. That's that's where I'm at with it. How about you all? Hmm. Well, the one thing I would say from our last talk, which I remember we were talking about Oedipus, mm. and we were talking about the crossroads, and I was thinking in psych, in terms of life path, it was Oedipus's inability to swerve, huh. which was but his downfall. Well, hold on one sec. Because yeah. he, he didn't swerve like his father was coming in the other direction. And he didn't swerve. He didn't take a side. He didn't pull a side. Like he just, you know. Mm. And then the um, the other was that Tiresias gives Oedipus a bunch of outs. When he's rapping with Oedipus, he says, you don't want to know. Let's drop it. You really huh. should drop this. You know, mm. let's, let's move on. Mm-hmm. And it was Oedipus's inability to swerve that caused you know a number of plays to be written and Hmm. let me just add that the great irony of that of course is that oedipus was consciously trying to swerve by um fleeing corinth right 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 and and according you know in pasolini's film adaptation of oedipus rex uh um, oedipus spins around um outside Hmm. of um between corinth and thebes and becomes purposely um purposefully dizzy he tries mm. to swear to avoid the other uh, prophecy, right? But mm. Sam, absolutely right. Ultimately, he cannot do so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I find myself ultimately thinking about, I think that what Lucretius is talking about, for me, is kind of the mystery of free will. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of problem he's confronting with his essentially materialist worldview. And... I think that there's something, I don't know, there's some, that it is a, like a great mystery. I don't know, it's something that, I think it's it's an unheralded greatness in humanity. <laughs> People don't think about the fact that they have free will. People just take it for granted, particularly under capitalism, under consumer capitalism, where your job is just to buy things all the time. It's right. kind of presumed that you have free will. But... <laughs> You know, it is. It's a mystery, and it's, it's like a. It's a. It's a high achievement of the human mind that we have freedom. <laughs> yeah, really beautifully put, Sparrow. Oh, well, I. I would say that this statement again affirms your allegiance to the fourth estate, to the oh. <laughs> to the wanderer, and to those who are at the edge of the wild, if not mm-hmm. looking back at us. Mm. Who have swerved away from the straight and narrow path of conformity. Yeah, maybe, that's, that's maybe a, we should, should find other nonconformists. Maybe that's the theme that we seem to be stumbling upon. Uh, Thoreau walking mm-hmm. through the woods off the track 
Lucretius celebrating the mysterious swerve. Maybe we can find other great uh, fighters against normalcy. Yeah. D.H. Lawrence wrote about the campfire, wrote about the, uh, an analogy of the campfire. Mm. Many, you know, hang around the fire and gaze into the fire and doing this and that. Mm. But he said very few people um, go to the edge of the tree line, go out into the woods at the edge of the light. And mm. then even fewer go out into the darkness past, mm. past the light. Wow. Where does he say that? It's written in a foreword to a book. Huh. Or and I think it had I think I think it's in a collected poetry of D. H. Lawrence I have. Oh wow. Yeah. That's where I read it, as I recall. Hmm. But um yeah, for sure. I think that's that is of interest to me. So you guys swerve on. This is great as ever. Um, well, this was a lot of fun. It's always very thought-provoking. Yeah. Let's swerve on. Hallelujah. Okay, peace. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.